please just wanted to let you all know that Habibdi Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is super important to me and others because it's a progressive group of voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives that we see in right-wing and liberal media presently today. And so I want to recommend some shows uh, that are part of this network that I personally enjoy. So Rob Rousseau's 49th Parahel, as well as Feel Rouge, which is an Indigenous storytelling series that featured stories from Indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. Harbinger Media is listener supported, so please head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe where you can get subscriber-specific content. So yeah, hope you all enjoy the show today. everyone. So in continuing the series on different social movements and different forms of resistance and activism throughout Canada, today I'm super excited to be sitting down with Charlotte Smith of the Encampment Support Network. And um, Charlotte, can you introduce yourself to the audience a bit and a bit about ESN Toronto and what you folks are doing? Yeah, totally. So uh, I'm Charlotte. I'm an outreach volunteer um, and organizer with the Encampment Support Network here in Toronto. Um, and we started, you know, about a year ago, we saw a lot of encampment evictions, right? And so there were tons of outreach workers who were, it was like the beginning of the pandemic, people were, everything had changed and people were burnt out working every day. And also then the city was coming in to start evicting people from encampments, right? And so they had called upon some people in the community, my friend Simone Schmidt, who's been an organizer in Toronto for a long time to kind of help do this eviction defense, right? So even just be a presence where we could show up to encampments when there was an eviction and help support people in this process that is quite violent. Um, and so out of that, you know, we were at evictions and, and we were trying to, our best to support people and realize that we kind of were just more, we were more bodies, you know what I mean? We were more random bodies that were already in this like really chaotic situation where there's like tons of people in, in, in your space, right? In someone's home. Uh, and so it was kind of around that, that we decided that we were going to start doing outreach uh, in a number of encampments across Toronto. So now we do outreach in seven different locations. Some people support folks who are kind of living down by the waterfront. And so those encampments are a little bit more scattered. Uh, and so we're in the park seven days a week, providing honestly basic material aid, right? Because the city wasn't doing this, right? The city wasn't out in the parks. They were not giving people water. They were not giving people food, right? And so we started kind of to do this and, and now we're there seven days a week across the city. Thank you. And um, if, if we can like zoom back pre-COVID, encampments already existed um, throughout the city. However, it's become very, like it's become more obvious and obviously COVID has, uh, impacted people in a brutal way. And the shelter systems were a site of so much uh, COVID because of neglect um, from the city and disinvestment. And um, the shelter system has always had issues. Um, I worked at two drop-in, three drop-ins in the city doing different art projects and facilitation. And it's, it's pretty disgusting um, the ways people are expected to live um, or live uh, in some sense. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could take us to before COVID, how many people did live in encampments, but um, as the ESN website points out, they were largely invisibilized because of the way law enforcement tickets people um, and how the housing list in Toronto is so long. And so what what are like what are the alternatives, but also this kind of history before COVID and then how it's 
become brutal during COVID. Yeah. So I have a friend named Dom who lives at Scatting Court and he says that COVID pulled the carpet back. It pulled the carpet back on all the flaws that are happening in the shelter system. There's always been encampments in Toronto for sure. I'm actually quite new to Toronto. I've only lived here for a year and a half, right? So I kind of got here and then COVID happened. So I don't have that firsthand kind of like experience of kind of what things were like previously right but we've seen i mean tent city decades ago this like massive violent eviction which is actually quite similar to what happened at lamport stadium next last week which i know we'll talk about a little bit more after but what we've seen is that there were tons of COVID outbreaks. And and when I talk to people about their experiences in the shelter system right COVID is definitely one of the things and one of the reasons that people are leaving right but the and But you also hear people talk about staff who are untrained, right? People who are, there's not adequate overdose prevention support, right? And so people are dying. People have their things stolen by, often by staff, right? And so there's lots of violence that's happening within these, in shelters, right? And now in shelter hotels, because the city started leasing these hotels for folks to live in throughout the pandemic, right? But all all of these issues that definitely precede COVID, right? And where people feel really you know, it's often traumatized, right, by their experiences in the shelter system, because it's just so inadequate and dehumanizing and institutionalizing. Um, and so now with COVID, what we've seen is like outbreaks all across the shelter system in a way that is, in a way that's ridiculous. I, re- I read a statistic from, I don't know, maybe March or April on someone's Twitter that said, you know, if you're homeless in Toronto, you have a one in 10 chance of getting COVID-19. Right. So it's not a safe environment for people for many reasons. And so I do think that we are seeing people in encampments and largely everyone has a different reason. You know what I mean? For being in an encampment, there's as many stories as there are people. And I think that that's a really important thing to name. Right. (laughs) Not to like homogenize people's lives. Um, But a lot of it is because the shelters are not safe because of these COVID outbreaks that are happening. Yeah. And um, there's there's multiple encampments. And correct me if there's more than these ones, but these are the ones I knew about. um, We're at Moss Park, Scatting Court, which you mentioned, Trinity Bellwoods, Parkdale, Cherry Beach and Little Norway Park. And throughout the summer and last year, um, police have attempted to uh, evict encampments, but also tear them down. And and it's a violent process. Um, And even before COVID, there was um, somebody named Jay, who's pretty well known, who on the Ryerson campus um, has lived in front of the Tim Hortons for a while and chooses to live there for many reasons. And my friend um, Zoe and I got upset when um, some progressive city councillors like Kristen um, worked with the Business uh, Improvement Association to uh, install basically permanent planters to displace him from where he wanted to live. Um, and and I think that um, housing outreach workers played a big role in that where housing outreach workers claimed that they found a better situation for him, even if that was a place for him to live. And so I'm not sure what your take is on this or ESN's take that speak to whichever role you feel comfortable talking about, but housing outreach workers often flag um, certain people as, as wanting to move them. And you mentioned earlier how people have different reasons for living in encampments. And uh, if we could discuss a bit about um, the role that the city has played, they they've, haven't done enough, but they also kind of move people away from their communities, which was a big part of um, Tent City. It was displacing people from a place where they, they like to be geographically. Yeah, so the city has... in 
invested in infrastructure of displacement, right? In the place of investing in housing for people, permanent housing. And I mean, when we think about the national housing strategy, um, which kind of was defunded around 1990 or in the 1990s, the federal government was subsidizing 20,000 new social housing, rent geared to housing, rent geared to income, sorry, housing units across Canada. Now that the number is around two or 3,000 a year. You know what I mean? So that's a huge decrease. And what's really interesting is that when they were building 20,000 units a year, police budgets were far lower than they are right now, right? So then we, yeah, and, and I think that this is what we're saying all the time when we're having conversations around abolition, like defund the police and put that money back into community support, right? And I think that there's a time where, you know, I'm sure it wasn't perfect, whatever, but we did kind of see that happening, right? Lower police budgets, more housing. So now what we see is the city in, in investing in displacing people, right? And this comes in the people that we see, at least at an eviction, are city workers and some of them might just be like park staff, parks ambassadors who are essentially a para-police force that are employed by the city um, with large salaries, right, who go in the parks and their role is basically to criminalize, harass and surveil people. And so we see them in the parks taking pictures of people's tents, you know what I mean? Everyone's campsite has a has a number, right? So you can be like, oh, I'm, I'm site number 15 or whatever, right? And I mean, I can't say who they're sharing information with with any certainty because I actually just like don't know. Um, and then sometimes streets to homes, workers who are people who are going into encampments, offering people places in, from what I've seen anyway in the past year, offering people spots in shelter hotels. So I've actually never encountered like or seen a streets to homes worker in an encampment offering someone housing, right? Going from the tent into housing, which is what the major, I would say the majority of people that I speak to want, they want permanent housing. Um, and then often they're bringing in heavy machinery and then sometimes police. And there was a time last year where there were no longer any police going to encampment evictions. You know what I mean? The police weren't there. There were streets to homes workers. Um, and then what they would do is that, you know, if people didn't, once people had left, you know what I mean? They would often fence off the area. So we saw this happen at George Hislop Park, Bathurst and Queens Key. They fence off the area so people can't come back, you know? And so this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying this infrastructure of displacing people. So I really appreciate that you brought up that the, the staff is inadequately trained because I'm not sure that people know this, but when um, the city of Toronto actually had to lay off a bunch of staff during the beginning of the pandemic. And this, I mean, like people who are like email job staff, like mm -hmm. they, the people who do the tourism Toronto stuff, because there was no tourism during COVID. What they did was they had them work in shelters and, and these people don't have any interest in working in a shelter. They don't have any interest um, in, in supporting unhoused people. They, they work in like nice cushy email jobs for the city and the city lacked staff and capacity and also didn't, couldn't run all of these departments, but wanted to keep their staff employed. Um, and so they did things like that. So we heard stories of people who were entirely untrained entering the shelter system and being horrible and egregious and like, and like violent at times and just not having any emotional like empathy, like anything like they, they just didn't know how to treat people who were unhoused um, because they come from like a social class that doesn't give a shit and um, are probably complicit in nimbyism. And so that's not surprising at all. And I appreciate you saying the para, like the para police force, because that's how I view um, some of them as well, because they flag people to be put in temporary housing far away from the places they know and like the geography they know. 
um, and the community they have. And, and that's such a temporary precarious uh, place to be in. And the hotels have a lot of rules uh, that are hard, that are hard for anybody to live by. And it's just, is very infantilizing and um, it's not actually supportive housing. It's not housing. It's, it's not housing. And so this is, this is what we see, right? They're displacing people from their communities. And so lots of people just want, you know, and people have different connections to the place that they're staying. You know what I mean? So I think we've heard and my friends, Aliyah Pabani and Ali Graham do a podcast called We Are Not the Virus. And they did an, a wonderful episode on Moss Park, people who grew up around Moss yeah. Park, right? Uh, Aliyah's a friend of the show. I'm just going to oh, plug that. Aliyah. <laughs> Aliyah. Um, <laughs> people who grew up in the area and want to stay there. You know what I mean? And I have friends who are living at Scatting and who are like, I grew up three blocks from here. I want to stay in my community, right? But then people are displaced. And so it's this form of invisibilization, right? Where it's like, well, you know, get people out of the downtown core, kind of move them to these other areas of the city, right? And there's, it's important, I think, also to highlight the connection between green space and property value you know what I mean and the connection between a public park and development right yeah. and so there's this perceived impact on property value when when there's an encampment in a public park right and so the city's investment is always going to be in the interest of capital and development right and not in the interest of of housing and and just like you said I mean when after this violent eviction happened at Lamport Stadium last Wednesday, right? I think Mayor John Tory put out, tweeted that there, you know, workers had gone and engaged 107 times offering people housing. And the response to that is like a shelter, one, a shelter hotel is not housing. You know, it's, it's a temporary site that their leases are, you know, maybe one to two years. And what happens after that, they're inadequate and people go there and they die, right? I've known people who've gone to a shelter hotel and they've died from overdose or people who've gone to a shelter hotel and they've died in a fire, right? And th these are the kind of the stories that we hear and like the people that we know, right? And so they're not safe for people, right? So it's not offering housing. And then the other thing is that they say that there's, um, the city will say, we are having daily engagements with people in encampments and like that engagement, I think often is parks ambassadors in the park, taking a photo of someone's tent. You know what I mean? And they don't talk to people, you know, perhaps they'll say hello, but it's, it's not engagement or what we also see is them doing wellness checks, right? Where they come to encampments often do not have water. They don't bring anything with them and they go up to a tent and they go, hey, are you okay? And what I believe is that what they do is that when they're doing these wellness checks, they're trying to see if somebody responds. And if somebody doesn't respond, then perhaps their tent will be determined to be abandoned, right? And then they can come, then they come in and they clear it, right? So it's, so it's like, you hear people who are like, well, I don't wanna answer them. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Or what if I'm not home when they come? Um, but then is my tent going to be determined abandoned and I'm going to come back one day and it's totally gone. And so because there's no communication and because there's so much bureaucratic rigidity and, and because of a lack of, I guess, care, right. For people living outside and this interest in capital, it's just like, there's, there's so much violence, right. And, and people lose their homes and th that like that determining of a tent being abandoned is like one of the ways in which that happens. And, and I, and I appreciate you bringing up, um, Lamport stadium because, um, people, so people from across Canada, listen to this podcast. Could you give us more context for what happened Wednesday? Um, there was an attempted clearing, but it seems like the city is still hell bent on, on clearing this site regard, like despite 
the attempted clearing and despite the amount of people that showed up to not allow that to happen? So, okay, there's a couple things that I should say to contextualize that. For I wasn't at Lamport Stadium on Wednesday, but I do have a sense of what happened. And so I kind of mentioned like the past, when I've been at evictions in the past, over the past year, you know what I mean, is when I started, I started doing this work just over a year ago. And what that process looked like is sort of what I described previously with, you know what I mean, the parks ambassadors, streets to homes, sometimes police and often bulldozers, right? So when I was going to, they were, they were evicting people under the gardener last year and they would show up with a bulldozer and then they'd be like, everybody out, right? And it was really, really violent. I watched people stand in front of bulldozers, watched the city come in with a bulldozer and try to, they went to like bulldoze this woman's tent while she was inside of it. You know what I mean? So crazy, crazy violence. Um, and so after that kind of was happening, I think that one thing that in some ways we were able to do just by having like a presence of people and, and public pushback was kind of slow this process down, right? So we stopped seeing bulldozers at encampment clearings for a little bit. And I always want to say like, these are the clearings that like, I knew about, that we knew about, right? And there are these encampments that we go to every day and then there's way more encampments across Toronto. What happened last week at Lamport Stadium was like, it was just nothing that I actually personally could have anticipated and it wasn't like anything we've ever seen before, you know? And so what happened was the city, I think there were city workers, there were people in hazmat suits and then there were, I think around 30 police and a bunch of corporate security and and horse cops. Yeah, right? I heard about 60 corporate security, which is like a ridiculous waste of money, but also scary. It's wild. And the interesting thing with corporate security is that they kind of, they can't make arrests, but they can hand people over to the police for arrests, right? So there is this communication going on between these people and it's off and it's and it's just really, really violent, right? And so many bodies here trying to evict people from their homes, right? And 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 people are in this city criminalized for not having a place to live, right? And if you live in Toronto, you know that the cost of housing is ridiculous, you know? I don't know anybody who isn't, doesn't kind of struggle to pay their rent, you know? I really don't think I do. Yeah, basically it was like a huge cavalry of, of police officers that came in to try to clear people from their homes, evict people from their homes. And so four people were arrested. I believe three of them were issued for trespass. Four people were arrested. Um, some of them were taken to the police station and released, but there was an unhoused person that lived at Lamport Stadium that was violently arrested by the police and taken to 14 division and held there. And then, you know, there was a lot of community support that went down to the police station to demand his, his release. And, and, and they did release him, um, although he was rearrested because, okay, so he was arrested for defending his home at Lamport Stadium, right? And, and, and they were going to hold him. Um, but I think we were able to put pressure on to release him. However, one of the conditions of his arrest was that he could not return to Lamport Stadium, which is where he lives. So when he did return to Lamport Stadium, he was rearrested on Friday. And the eviction- So they just follow, they just follow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so when I called the police station on Friday, the officer I was speaking to kept saying, well, you know, if he reoffends, if he reoffends, then we're gonna keep arresting him, right? And 
And, and so that's kind of like, that's how the situation is approached by the law, right? And it is, yeah, where we're, we're returning to your home when you live in an encampment is reoffending, and it is a crime, right, to be homeless in this city. Yeah, and they did manage to, like, I know lots of people showed up because I kept seeing it, like, people kept texting and it was all over social media to show up um, for eviction defense for Lamport Stadium, but they still managed to um, clear a tent in two wooden shelters. And these shelters are, like, very special to people who have them. And also, like, what is meant to happen to people once the city just takes, the, and they bring dump trucks and they, like, literally, they take people's possessions. So, like, before yeah. this all happened at Ryerson, when that happened to, um, Jay, like they, they took his stuff and just threw it out and they just throw out people's stuff. So I guess what, what happens to those people after who like lose their, their tiny shelter? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the question. Then the tiny shelter is gone. And often what happens is people just have to find it. They have to just replace all of their worldly possessions. You know what I mean? And I think that there is this idea that homeless people's belongings like don't have meaning. Right. But you know, but it, it's ridiculous, right? And people lose things that are really important and really sentimental to them. You know what I mean? And so I think more than it just being about material objects, it is about this dehumanization, right? And absolute carelessness and total violence. Um, and so people did lose their stuff that day. And, and, it, and it's happening, you know, probably every day, definitely every day in, in this country. Um, but what was... What did happen on Wednesday at Lamport Stadium as well is that there was a huge showing of community support, right, to help try to defend these people's homes so that they wouldn't clear them. And they were actually successful in defending some people's homes and, and they did not end up evicting people that day, thanks to the showing of community. But at the same time, like those people have to refind homes, right? The, the, the three, yeah, the three who had their, their the tent in the two respective tiny shelters. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They do. And I think that the thing that's also important to kind of talk about is that, okay, well, first of all, because Streets to Homes no longer, so Streets to Homes are the people that can go and they can offer you a spot in a shelter hotel, right? They're no longer showing up during an eviction, right? I think as a move to be like, oh, see, we're not a part of this process or whatever, right? So I think they'll show up before, maybe a day before, maybe the morning of. It's a new thing that we've actually only started to see in the past like week or two. But in this process, right, people are whatever way coerced into making a decision. You know what I mean? And so at least a lot of the time, right? And it can't, it is a really coercive process, right? Where people, you know, maybe want to stay, but there's just what I'm saying makes sense, right? It's hard to make a decision like, do I want to stay? Or do I actually want to go to the shelter hotel? Or maybe I haven't wanted to go to the shelter hotel, but now that there's like a bunch of police in my front yard, maybe I do want to go right. So it acts in a very coercive way that ends up just being really yeah. chaotic and really violent for, for people who are experiencing it. And this is like happens in so many ways, including obviously losing your home, right? But it's just like a, a terrible process. Yeah, and the the trespass notices. So like I remember as of April 4th, there were um even when I was walking around the, the city put up these trespass notices for public parks. And and I appreciate like way at the beginning you touched on this like very important theme that's reoccurring with encampments and parks in Toronto and la land. Um that the green space and capitalism. So like so if we could talk a bit about like, for example, the Trinity Bellwoods Park and how 
that park, um, people who live in the nice houses um, seem very distraught to see unhoused people in their in their precious park, quote unquote. But then we see like um, millennials and and uh, who can go in in the summer, and that's like a park to have fun and like and. I guess, use the space in a recreational way, yet people who can't have housing in the city where this, yeah, it's impossible to rent. Um, I struggle renting. I can't even rent right now. I'm back with my parents because of COVID. And it's it's just very hard to pay rent in the city. But um, there's certain sites like Trinity Bellwoods that always comes up where you can find people who may have uh, quote unquote progressive politics, but they, they just don't like seeing an encampment in the, the precious park where they drink their white claws. And, and so I, I'd, I'd appreciate um, if you could like shed light on that dynamic between like why the city is so invested in having these, these kind of niche parks that people love to hang out in and not letting um, people who are cash poor and precarious because of how brutal this city is live, live there. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be NIMBYism anywhere that there's an encampment, you know, and I think that the really cool thing and with Trinity Bellwoods in particular is that there's like tons of neighbors around Trinity Bellwoods who are really supportive, right? And want to show up and, and see how they can support people who are living in encampments. And I, what's, what's interesting, and, and this is maybe just reiterating what you've already said in a different way, is like the juxtaposition in that park, right? And I think that what we see, especially, I mean, right now it's the long weekend and um there was like tons of people in trinity bellwoods on friday night you know and i was there on a saturday night a couple weeks ago right and and there's this i should say there's this narrative around encampments they're chaotic they're violent right there was last fall a couple of unhoused people in different organizations in toronto took the city to court right trying to get a moratorium on evictions and the judge denied the moratorium on evictions and part of the judge's ruling used language like, if we allow encampments to be in public parks, the parks will become uh, a battleground of competing uses for public space, right? And, and really just speaking to this narrative of like chaos and violence, right? And we see this in media all the time. Rosie DeMano just wrote a ridiculous article. <laughs> we could oh, go yeah, about. yeah. She, like <laughs> camped out for a day and then... Exactly. And so what I when I was at Trinity Bellwoods last weekend, I, I was with a friend and we had to go um, talk to someone who stays in the encampment there. Right. And I walked from the east side of the park where there's people getting wasted, partying, right? Housed people, millennials, whatever. And then you walk to the other side where there's the encampment and it was like peaceful and 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 everyone was just kind of like hanging out and 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 serene and whatever living their lives and I just thought wow it's so interesting that the narrative right is that the encampments are chaotic because when I'm in this park like I'm seeing the chaos over here with these people that want to come here and party on the weekend but for some reason that is acceptable right and I think it comes back to like I think it's interesting to think about unsanctioned uses of public space right and what even is acceptable within that and, and what isn't right and so ultimately it's like encampments are just highly stigmatized and criminalized but when you're standing there and you're looking at it you're like well oh that's a good point and I guess like another thing I don't know if it's still true but um the city doesn't provide water so like one gap ESN fills is is water um and it's been an ask from people for a while now that um, during COVID, I, I'm still not sure where it's true and where it's not true geographically, but um, the park amenities were kind of turned off. And I think they should be coming back on for the summer because of 
other people deciding that the parks are fine again um, when the weather gets warmer. Mm-hmm. But I, the big recommendations during COVID are to be able to distance and to be able to like wash your hands. And then in shelters, it's near impossible. To, you can't distance. You can't physically distance in a shelter, which is why shelter outbreaks were so bad throughout this city. And um, you you are also still sharing amenities, whereas in the park, you're, you're outdoors, which is much safer. I usually do have your own like little space, whether that's a tiny shelter or a tent. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not like sleeping in a bunk that you can like handhold the person next to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you don't necessarily have water running water, but that's because of the city not turning on certain amenities or like allowing community centers to be accessible during this time mm-hmm. um, and park washrooms. But um, ESN does water. I know ESN does Gatorade. Are there other things that ESN provides? So, I mean, that's a really important point, and it's especially now that it's summer again, right? We see that the city, they were not providing water to people. You know what I mean? And last summer, there was a hand-washing station at Moss Park that hadn't been cleaned. It was filled with, like, gross sludge water, you know? And so, like, who would wash, who would wash their hands in that? I don't know. And so I, I think we see different things at different spaces. I know that at Trinity Bellwoods, there was a respite in the community center there last summer, but throughout the winter, they've been allowing people to go in there, take showers, use the washrooms and stuff like that. So that's um, really incredible. So we give water, Gatorade. We do things like tents, sleeping bags, um, snacks. So usually just granola bars and trail mix, batteries, sometimes gift cards, right? We've got like a pretty standard like list of the things that we give out regularly and then obviously you know we're lucky to have people kind of donate other things which allows us to buy other stuff for people sometimes or give stuff to other people sometimes and like many amazing groups restaurants um other kind of grassroots groups and and like one thing we see um is that gentrification has been rampant in toronto uh and and it's it's gotten people unhoused, but it's also made the housing market completely unaffordable. But there's also this other layer where um, colonialism has often played a big role in people losing housing and, and home. And you mentioned earlier how a lot of people grew up in some of the neighborhoods, um, but also how encampment eviction uh, replicates a lot of like colonial logics. And I'm wondering if you would mind expanding on that. Yeah, for sure. So when we see areas being gentrified, um which, you know, Alexander Park, Scouting Court is right next to Kensington Market, right? And, and if you walk across the street from Alexander Park, you see this whole Tridel condo complex going up, right? And, and you see there's a storefront on Queen that's, you know, Market, Alexander Park, changing the neighborhood, whatever the language they're using is, right? But it's these large gentrification projects that make housing and and completely unaffordable to people right and and property values go up right and so you see people who are being renovated being evicted can no longer afford to live where they where they've grown up right and so because of this interest in development right an interest in private property which is a, a colonial concept and it's it is rooted in colonial logic people are being displaced from their homes right and um when i think that when I think about my treaty obligations, living in Toronto, right, thinking about the dish with one spoon, thinking about the two row wampum treaty, dish with one spoon says, you know, take what you need, leave the rest and you keep it clean, right? And so the idea that someone can own multiple properties and profit off of somebody else's livelihood, somebody else's ability to have a roof over their head, not even, and, and putting aside even the conditions of what 
that home or, or, or apartment or whatever it is might look like, um, that is colonial violence, right? Unfolding, and we see this in encampments where we see you know, city workers and the state, first of all, claiming that green space can somehow be city property, right? Or, or someone's property, again, is within this logic of private property and ownership of the land. Um, and then displacing people and invisibilizing people, right? Which is, you know, a process that is as old as Canada itself. Yeah, and I, it's interesting too how um, a public park is only public to some people. And who is it allowed to be public to? And who are the amenities? Like we saw over the last two weeks, people so upset about not being able to play tennis or golf um, because those courts got locked up and we saw action. The board government was able to unlock them and, and the playgrounds being shut down because who was advocating? It's a certain class of people um, and it's certain interests that it serves, um, although it's public space. Uh, so it's, it's interesting to see gentrification and the extension of what gentrification is doing and just there's no space and shelters. So it's like, what is the city? Where is the city expecting people to go? Um, and it's a disappearing of people, which is a colonial logic. You disappear them from the public landscape and then you disappear them entirely. Um, and so I think it's important that people continue to push the government, but also show up, like you said, for Lamport Stadium. And um, it's it's to disappear people, you criminalize them. So I'd be interested in hearing how you think um, and I think I agree with you, obviously, um, um, how unhoused people are just criminalized because of being cash poor and not being able to afford to live in a city that's unlivable. Yeah, I did an interview with, well, I don't know, whatever news station last week. And they said, well, what would you say to people who, who, would, who would suggest that, you know, if you're homeless, you need to just go get a job? And, you know, lots of people that live in encampments actually do have jobs, you know what I mean? So it's not about that, right? And also you hear people saying, you know, being homeless is expensive What and whatever, maybe I'm getting a little bit tangential now, right? But it's not because, and, and, and a lot of the time, and I think that John Tory does this, tries to blame this issue of, tries to blame the fact that people are living outside on mental health or on substance use. You know what I mean? And that actually removes our focus from the issue, which is that people cannot afford to live in this city. And because people cannot afford to live in this city, they end up being criminalized. And so when you break it down and you're like, oh, people actually are just being criminalized because they don't have enough money to be able to live in an apartment because they're poor, right? Because of poverty. Um, and it's really disturbing to think about in that way. And so, yeah, I think, I think the idea that homelessness is symptomatic of something else, while that can be true, uh, homelessness is symptomatic of not having a home, right? And the reason that people don't have a home is because of the rise of property value. And I was having a conversation with someone yesterday who's been doing this work a lot longer than I have. And the really important point that they made was that rent subsidies, things like rent subsidies, right, actually do not do anything to address the the market price, you know what I mean? They keep the market price where it is. And so housing does not become more affordable with a rent subsidy. And so until there is some sort of actual investment in building social housing, right, or in expropriating buildings, creating more rent geared to income housing in the downtown core, then there's still going to be people living in encampments. And so one of the things that we, one of like our main demands is that the city needs to repeal the bylaws that are criminalizing people for living outside. Um, because criminalizing people for being homeless is not going to end homelessness. It just absolutely won't. 
Thank you. And what is like the current state as we're recording this of John Tory and the, the eviction ban? I, I think it's lifted now, right? The encampment eviction ban, because that's how they were able to try to do that on Wednesday. Yeah. So technically, they shouldn't be evicting people from encampments. And the CDC has said that since the beginning of COVID-19. You know what I mean? Like people should be allowed to live because there's been no COVID outbreaks in encampments. And there's been tons of COVID outbreaks in shelters. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there's there been might... deaths in shelters from COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, there might be a COVID case in, in encampments, but from what I've seen up until now is that that's not actually spreading. You know what I mean? And, and they, they actually are sometimes isolated cases. And so because this lawsuit, which I mentioned earlier, because we lost that lawsuit, they actually, there is still, they can still evict people from, from encampments. You know what I mean? And this is actually the line that I get a lot from police when they're in encampments and they're harassing people. They're like, well, it's illegal to be here anyway. So basically like I can do whatever I want, you know? Um, but the thing is we actually, I, my personal belief is that the reason that we haven't seen in camp, as many encampment evictions in, you know, 2021 specifically is because there is nowhere for people to go, right? So because there are COVID outbreaks in all the shelters and very few shelter spaces, right? It's just like, a maybe I'm being a little bit reductionist in saying this, but it's a bad PR move. The city can't just go and evict people if there's just nowhere for people to go. Yeah, there's, I think the last numbers I saw was that there's, there's, 2,000 more people than the spots in the shelter system that are known Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that need some form of actual housing, not sheltered housing. And how John Tory, every time he responds with that generic thing, if you email him and use the toolkit, um, he's lying about the number of beds and spaces Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and, uh, as according to the number of people. And um, the hotels, obviously, there's like restrictions on um, substance use, there's curfews, you can't bring your pets, which is a big concern for many people. Obviously, um, it makes no sense that you can't bring it's not a home if you can't bring your pet. It's not a solution if you can't bring your pet. It's not a solution if you you can't use it doesn't make any sense. Um, And at the same time, on April 4th, I know that there were the notices of trespass, which I think would also be illegal at this time. Or uh, is that a mess, a dicey one? No, like the notices of trespass actually are, they're, they're a tactic of evicting people, which is like, it, it criminalizes people, right, through evicting them. But what we saw last summer was that the city was giving people 72-hour eviction notices, or at least they were supposed to be giving people 72-hour eviction notices. And I've been at, a, at an encampment eviction where they gave a one-hour eviction notice. So it's not really like that rule was being followed anyway. But what the notices of trespass do is that I can get a notice that, like you can, they, once they have the notice of trespass, they can actually come in and evict people whenever they want. There, there is actually no warning then for when, for when that's going to happen. And it also kind of, I think, changes the, the, the process a little bit where it's like, this is just an eviction. If you stay here, you're going to, you know, get arrested, get a huge, it can be up to a $10,000 fine, whatever, right? Whereas before it was like, well, we'll offer you an indoor space and like, then if you say no, well, then we'll evict you or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And with um, with the notices of trespass, like the the one hour is ridiculous because then people can't show up like they did for Lamport. It's hard to get people to show up, which is intentional. Yeah, absolutely. 
And thanks, Charlotte, for giving us so much of your time today and, and talking about what ESN does for people who don't know. But what are things that people in the city of Toronto can do or even other cities who are trying to help uh, fight encampment eviction? What can they do? Yeah. So, I mean, a huge thing that people can do is email your city councillors, email John Tory and demand that they repeal the bylaws which criminalize people for living in parks. Um, create more rent geared to income housing in the downtown core, provide basic material aids such as running water access to washrooms, um, electricity and heat sources, um, and stop removing people's belongings from parks. And beyond that, other things that people can do if they want to support is ESN has a newsletter, which you can sign up for if you go to our Instagram, which is esn.to.4real. That's the number four, right? And there will be calls to action, right? Um, in terms of what's to come, right? Because as we saw this violent eviction at Lamport Stadium next Wednesday, it's we anticipate that, you know what I mean, that's what we're going to continue to see. You can always donate and all of that information you can get from our from our Instagram or by emailing report.on.toronto at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you for joining me. I will link um, ESN Toronto's socials and their website in the newsletter and in the show notes. And I hope people support them. And I hope people listen to We Are Not the Virus, the podcast that accompanies ESN. And that's Aliyah Pabani, who was mentioned before, who is my friend. Um, so I'm biased, <laughs> but it's it's a brilliant podcast. I think that Aliyah is one of the most brilliant podcasters in Canadian media. And that podcast um, would give more of a narrative and narratives from people who live in encampments versus what sh- the conversation Charlotte and I just had. So I think it's a very complimentary podcast uh, to go along with this episode. So thanks for listening, everybody. Hey, these episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Habibdi Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti Please. And you can find us on Twitter at Habibti Please with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content. So it's much appreciated. Yalla, let's grab some tea and shisha.